What's up, people? It's me, Ramon. Welcome to the podcast that will entertain, educate, and inform you. Grab a ball and get ready for this serving of cornbread and caviar. What's up, people? It's me, Ramon. Thank you for joining us again for Cornbread and Caviar, a podcast. Again, as always, I've got some exciting, provocative stuff to talk about. Now, this episode, for me, is a big fucking deal. So make sure you're tuned in, listening. Please take some time to comment. Email us at eatcornbreadandcaviar at gmail.com. Uh, share this episode with your friends. Find us on Instagram at Eat Cornbread and Caviar. This episode for me is about to be dope. Before we get into the meat of the subject, um, my essence of brown brilliance today is a young lady that I came across while doing research for this particular podcast, and she is none other than Mandy Bowman. Mandy Bowman is the founder of the official Black Wall Street app. It's an app that allows you as a Black-owned business, in my terms, Brown-owned business, to register your Black-owned business with the app, and then uh, you can either, A, be a consumer looking for a Brown-owned business, or you can be a Brown-owned business looking for consumers who want to shop or do business with your company. So it's called the official Black Wall Street app. It's like a nice little orange app with white letters that say BWS. Um, I think I, I'm here in Detroit. Um, I think that there are a lot of businesses here alone that can completely benefit from this. I don't know if a lot of people know about it. I did not know about it. But now that I do, I'm be out here like, yeah, Mandy Bowman. My brown sister, she created this amazing app. Let's get it. Um, um, just a little bit about Mandy Bowman. Well, at least at the time for this article that I found, she's 26. I'm not exactly sure how old she is now. Um, but she's a young woman in her 20s. Uh, went to, she's born and raised like Brooklyn, New York. From, uh, went to Babson College and studied entrepreneurship and global business management. So she's an educated sister. And uh, I think she's been a social media manager at the Essence Magazine. Um, great things she's doing in her life. I think this app is dope as ever. So that's just a little bit about her. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, and maybe this will reach her ears. I would love to have you on the podcast if you are ever in the Detroit area. And once we are able to travel to you, that would be dope because I think that having a conversation with this Mandy Bowman will be amazing. So. Without further ado, I want to talk about some stuff today. <sighs> Let's just sit back and dream a little bit. Let's just have some dream time. Let's, let's, what would you do, like for real? I'm going to give you a couple seconds. I'm going to put this out there and give you a couple seconds. What would you do if you had $1.2 trillion? 
Like, that's more than Oprah. That's more than Jay-Z and Beyonce together. That's more than Donald Trump. Hell, that's more than uh, uh, the guy who did Zappos, I think. And then you got uh, Bill Gates. All these really, really, really wealthy people. $1.2 trillion. Not billion, not even million, but trillion dollars. What would you do? Do you know that people who have the money tend to run the world? So I'm going to give you about five quick seconds to think about it. What would you do if you had $1.2 trillion? And five, four, three, two, one. That kind of money can influence economic change in the U.S. It can get you on uh, a better footing on a playing field. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) that kind of money, if you had power to harness $1.2 trillion, you would be so powerful. Hell, your skin color wouldn't really matter because you have this money that you could do a lot with. You could be majority owner in a lot of businesses. You could, uh, uh, you know, stop shopping somewhere and shut that shit down, make companies lose a lot of money. If you personally have $1.2 trillion, well, you may not know this, and some of you may, but if you are an African-American in the United States, if you're one of the millions of African, maybe billions, I don't know how many African-Americans are in the United States, I'm not sure, but if you are one, you have a part of the $1.2 trillion. Let me sidebar right here real fast. One thing that we need to know as African-Americans is this. Where we come from, we are a collectivist society, meaning that we collectively and commonly use our resources, pool resources, to help each other grow, build as a community, as a village. This is how things are, I would imagine, in Africa currently, in a lot of places that are not so, I want to say, Americanized. Um, but in the more the village uh, towns where people are you got your farmers you got your you know people who are artisans and they're doing these different things everybody has their own particular function and what is it the sum of the individual parts equals the sum of the whole it's something like that i may have gotten the adage wrong but you get what i'm trying to say move across the ocean to the united states and our brown asses are over here being individuals as I often say on my podcast, crabs in a barrel, trying to get it for themselves. A lot of us, not all, okay? Let me make it very clear. When I say these things, when I make these statements, because I don't want to offend anybody, it's not about all. It's only applicable if it applies to you. So we got our brown asses over here trying to be individualistic. First of all, trying to live an American dream that's not built for us (laughs) yet. And a lot of us get shut out of the American dream. I was one of them. I got shut out the American dream. You know, I got the big corporate job and, you know, got the mortgage and all that shit. And then I lost my job unjustly. And then here I am. (laughs) So um, we are individualistic. But if we were to pool our resources and really, really put our shit together, 
we have $1.2 trillion at our disposal that we can use to really make some noise. Now, this is some activist level shit. I get it. And, you know, um, I don't want to end up on FBI watch list or CIA watch list, whatever. Don't care. $1.2 trillion. And guess what? If we were to get ourselves, not all of us, some of us get ourselves some education, make more money, you know, um, open businesses, make even more money. We'd have more money to really harness and utilize. Let me move on because I can keep talking about that. But if you are an African-American, just be aware you have access to $1.2 trillion at your disposal. That's a lot of money. My producer over here, Brandy over here, doing his little cha-cha dance that he likes to do. But that's a lot of money. It is something to dance about. It's something to be excited about. According to a Nielsen report published in February of 2018 from studies they completed all of 2017, African-Americans have $1.2 trillion in spending power. Why do I keep saying $1.2 trillion? I want to get it drilled into your head. If you're listening to this podcast, remember $1.2 trillion spending power. Insights in this article, like I said, were derived from the Nielsen home scan for 52 weeks ending December 30th, 2017. Then they brought the report out February, 2018. So this does not take into account our individual wealth. Now there are some Brown folks who got a whole lot of money, but I guarantee you there's a whole lot more that don't have a lot of money, but still collectively, not individualistically, but not individually, but collectively we have $1.2 million. Um, we we are literally taking our monies a lot of us again not all of us and I'm not going to say that after a while you just have to know my heart know my spirit to know that I'm not talking about everybody again it's only applicable if it applies to you but we are taking our money and spending them in companies that don't cater back into our community. They don't cater to our community. They will spend our money. They'll take our money, spend our money in their communities, but they won't put the money back into the community of brown folks, African-Americans, that is. Let me just, I found some stuff um, that I found online, and it's also from 2017. Here is that Nielsen report. This is how the money breaks down. The Black Spend, Ethnic Hair and Beauty AIDS, $54.4 million. Women's Fragrances, $152 million. This is just in one year, right? Men's Toiletries, $62 million. Personal Soap and Bath Needs, $573.6 million. Frozen Unprepared Meat and Seafood, $761.7 million. Refrigerated juices, $578.2 million. Oh, here's a big one. Self-stable juices and drinks, $1.04 billion. And I could go on and on and on and on. <sighs> Millions of dollars that we spend, that's just black people. 
actually, let me give you the first couple, give you the total spend of everybody, and then our portion of it. So like I said, the ethnic hair and beauty aids, $54.4 million. The total spend, $63.5 million. So that means that we are making up 85.65% of that industry's money. Brown people, African American, those of us that collectively have $1.2 trillion. That's astonishing to me. Very astonishing. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just really got me. Okay, so these companies, and again, this is my opinion, these companies, this is how they put money back into us. Nothing or they're spending the money on marketing to get our dollars. Um, <laughs> they're spending they're spending the money in marketing to get our dollars into their companies because the money they spend on marketing to our blood mm, brown asses. I like to still learn how to say brown instead of black. Our brown asses is a drop in the bucket as compared to what we spend on their products. I found this interesting video during my research and it was from 1954. And the name of this video is, I think it's marketing. What, what is it, Brandon? What's the name of that video? The Secret of Selling to the Negro. From 1954. It's called The Secret of Sailing, Selling to the Negro. This is teaching white merchants how to sell to black folks. Uh, they knew long, long time ago that there was money to spend. And if they could get it out of our pockets into theirs, they're winning. So, and they, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you know there used to be a Black Wall Street? It was like an area was home to like, it was an area in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I believe, that was like home to dozens of prominent black businessmen and women and a variety of black-owned businesses that were very successful up until the Tulsa race riot. Now, not only did black Americans want to contribute to the success of their own shops, but there was also racial segregation laws that prevented them from shopping anywhere other than their area, which is Greenwood at the time. Right. So I think that um, the thing that really ripped that whole black Wall Street apart was, if I remember correctly, um, well, actually, I got some information right here. I don't want to try to do it from memory because I just forget shit sometimes. But anyway, um, I guess this it was like Memorial Day weekend. According to Wikipedia, this guy, 19 year old named Dick Rowland. He was a shoe shiner. He was accused of assaulting this this white chick, um, 70 year old white chick. Um, and she was an elevator operator at a nearby building. He was taken into custody. A bunch of us, we were worried that they were going to try to hang him uh, or lynch him, I should say. And then a group of us got our guns, went to the police station and basically we got him out. Now. When we got there, we encountered a crowd of white people and 
white men and women. Confrontation developed. Shots were fired. 12 people were killed. 10 white, 2 black. And then as the news of death spread throughout the city, mob violence exploded. Thousands of whites rampaged through the black neighborhood that night and the next day, killing men and women, burning and looting stores and homes. About 10,000 black people were left homeless in this Tulsa race riot. Property damage amounted to like what 1.5 million in real estate and 750,000 in personal property which would equate to about 32 million in 2019. So this is what happened to our black wall street. And as you know, back in the day, whenever a white person made an accusation against a Brown person, it was taken extraordinarily seriously. And even if it were completely unfounded evidence that suggested that it was bullshit, it was still taken to the nth degree. It was like exponentially exacerbated, right? So I don't know what happened. I don't know if this 19-year-old Dick Rowland was trying to get his dick into this 17-year-old white chick, Sarah Page, but she made the accusation. All of this, just from that one little accusation, the whole situation where we had our nice little uh, Black Wall Street crumbled, and we were successful there. We had it going on. So I digress. So I got to say this one more time. Well, not one more time. I'm going to say it a few more times to, to your ass. Get it. $1.2 trillion. So we already have this huge disadvantage in America, right? So it's this really cool illustration um, on YouTube. It's a YouTube video called Life of Privilege Explained in a $100 Race. And this basically, this video, um, this, I'm not sure what the group is. I didn't get into it that much, but I just wanted to kind of see the illustration. But I, this white dude got all these young men lined up. You know, I think young men and women, but um, maybe just young men. I don't quite remember. But he got them all lined up, all equally, and they're at the starting line. And he goes and says, okay, if you are, if you are born... I mean, if you if you live in a household with the mother and a father, take 10 steps forward. Naturally, a lot of the black kids stay back. A lot of the white kids moved up. If your parents have college education, move five steps forward. Uh, naturally, a lot of the white kids moved up. A lot of the black kids stay behind. Now, again, this is not applicable to everybody, but this is what the bulk of America is like. So he kept going through these scenarios. And by the end of it, you see that a lot of the white kids were a lot closer to this $100. Before the race could even start for them to actually get to the $100, these white kids, before the race even started, the white kids are closer to the goal, closer to the success, closer to the mark. They might have had a 100 yards to run while some of the black kids had like, 3,000 yards to run. So they started, we start out disadvantaged. It's great. It'll be in the, the notes. You'll be able to see this video. It's really cool. A lot of people, you may have already seen it, but it's a very good illustration about how things are with relation to race relation um, in the United States. So 
here's my thing. With $1.2 trillion, our money should be going into black banks, right? Brown banks, excuse me. Brown-owned banks. I just don't like the word black. Let me just go sidebar. Don't like the word black. It sounds derogatory. You know what I'm saying? Black death, black plague. Black is always represented negative and dark and evil, right? But I'm not black anyway. I'm brown. I don't know where that term came from, but I'm a beautiful brown complexion myself. Brandon, are you black or are you brown? I am brown. Okay, Brandon's brown. Okay, great. My sister Renejo, she's not here. She's one of my producers. She's kind of a, you know, yellow kind of, but she's still brown for all intents and purposes. So I, that's why I'm trying to change my vernacular to use the word brown as opposed to black. So I'll slip up every now and again as I make that mental transition. Anyhow, um, brown-owned banks. And credit unions. There are a lot of them out there. We just have to research them. And it's not, it may not be as convenient as a Chase or uh, here in Detroit, we've got Comerica. Or if you're familiar with Huntington Bank or whatever, Bank of America. Bank of America and Chase are two big banks, right? They go neck and neck for how big they are. So it's not as convenient. But in my opinion, um, it's a reasonable service to support these brown-owned institutions um we need that shift right and and honestly i i worked in the banking industry for 11 years i would love to go be an executive at one of these brown owned banks like and i'll tell you why later in the podcast but i'd love to go be an executive at one of these. so if anybody who works at a brown owned bank um pass my information along you know email me I'm Ramon. Email me at eatcornbreadandcaviar at gmail.com. Let's talk. But uh, with this kind of money, we could have our banks, like, we could put money into our banks. We can lend to our people, get us houses, get us into better economic positions. Um, why the fuck are we not in a better position than we are? Right? In 2014, this chick named Maggie Anderson did this TEDx talk. And she's the author of this book um, called Empowerment, uh, what is it called? Empowerment Experiment. And it explains that a dollar, this book kind of explains how the dollar works in different communities. This to me is mind blowing. In the Asian community, these are the same Asians and, and not Again, this may not be applicable at all. These are the same Asians who a lot of them own the beauty supply stores that we shop at, right? They own the beauty supply stores that we shop at. A lot of other people, they, they, we, a lot, and again, I'm not being stereotypical. I'm just telling you my experience has been here in the greater metropolitan Detroit area. I've traveled to Atlanta. I've traveled to Florida. I've traveled to New York. I've even been in D.C. I got some more traveling to do in Chicago. I've been a lot of places, just to name a few. And whenever I go and get my, you know, manicure, pedicure, a lot of these Asian folks also own um, these nail shops, right? And I say Asian is a broad category, may not be, you know, hopefully it's representative of everybody that's in the Asian community. But a lot of them own the beauty supply stores. A lot of them own the nail shops. Um, we spend our money at these places. We do. 
black people, we spend our money, brown people, we spend our money at these places and their money. Oh, and let me actually add this part in there too. There has been some, there was a conversation I was having with a guy and we were talking um, and he explained to me how there's this, and again, I don't have any facts, facts to kind of validate this, uh, but I think it's like a pool of money that a lot of Asian Americans or the Asian community put together and they help each other launch businesses. Then when their business is launched, then they then take money, put it back into the pool and help the next person launch their business. So they continuously go around and they just help launch businesses from this pool of money that they all come together as a community, as a collectivist community. They put their pool, their resources and they help one another launch businesses. Wow. Wow. And I'm sure they're not the only communities. Think about the liquor stores and where we spend our money there, right? So the dollar, Maggie Anderson, 2014 TEDx talk. Money stays in the Asian community for up to 28 days. 28 days. That means that for just about a month, that money is circulating, benefiting multiple people within their community. 28 days a month, it stays in their community. So that means that I get my, I get paid as an Asian person. So I get your dollar. I'm just use brown people as an example. I have a, I'm an Asian person. I have a beauty supply store. You as a brown person come spend $50 with me. That $50 then goes into my pocket. What do I need? Mm. I need groceries. So I'm going to go to an Asian grocery store. I'm going to spend that money at that Asian grocery store. Then that money goes into that person's pocket. Then that person takes it. Oh, what do they need? Maybe they need a manicure, pedicure. They take their money. They go take it and spend it at the uh, nail salon that's owned by maybe a family member, maybe an acquaintance, but in the same community. Then what? That money goes into their pocket. Then they take the money and maybe they go and, you know, spend it somewhere else that's also owned by an Asian person. I don't know how long it's all takes for this to happen, but that could be a 28-day transaction for that dollar, that, that, that $50 to stand within their community. In a Jewish community, about 20 days, same concept. They're taking it and they're spending it at businesses that are owned by their cohorts. White communities, 17 days. They keep their money in their communities for 17 days. Hispanic communities, seven days. So for about a week, Hispanic people are taking their monies to each other to spend it, and then eventually it goes out of the community. The black community. The dollar stays in the black community for six, just six. No, 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 no. Not weeks, not even months. Not months, not weeks. It stays in the black community for six hours. Six hours. So if I get this $10 at 10 a.m., it's gone by four. Six hours. Our dollars stay in our community for six hours. That's deep. That means that we don't have the resources, the businesses, the anything for us to keep our monies in our communities to benefit our people. We're giving it to everybody else. 
as soon as we our money is actually spent before we get it again not applicable to everybody it's spent before we actually get it so it's It's astonishing. I don't know. I don't know. Six hours. That blew my mind. I hope that it blew your mind too. I hope it's going to drive you to join me and do something about it. <laughs> so, I mean, your hair care products. Yeah. Who owns those stores? The liquor stores, you buy the cigarettes and the sugary soda. Who owns those stores? Who owns the soda? Right? The grocery stores. Um, when you buy Hennessy from the liquor store, guess who owns Hennessy? Guess who, if, if, if we didn't buy Hennessy, if we literally made our own liquor company, we didn't buy Hennessy as brown people? the company would literally fall to his knees and probably go under. That's how much money we spend buying Hennessy. I'll find the, the, the research I found on that, put it in the notes. That's deep. That's very deep. So we desperately need to go back to our homeland mentality and be more collectivist, stop being crabs in a barrel, and we pool our resources together as we rise, lift, educate one another, teach one another how to fish instead of giving a fish. A lot of us want a handout. No, learn how to fish so you can eat for a lifetime. In April, on April 12, 1964, Malcolm X gave a speech called The Ballot or the Bullet. Here's what he said. So our people not only have to be re-educated to the importance of supporting black business, but the black man himself has to be made aware of the importance of going into business. And once you and I go into business we own and operate at least the businesses in our community what we will be doing is developing a situation wherein we will actually be able to create employment for the people in the community and once you can create some employment in the community where you live it will eliminate the necessity of you and me having to act ignorantly and disgracefully boycotting and picketing someplace else trying to beg him for a job anytime you have to rely upon your enemy for a job you're in bad shape that's deep that's very deep and very true and again personal i can personally say that i understand that i'm not calling white folks my enemy because that's not how i think I do think that this world, again, is not for me and my people. So we have to design it so that it's for us. And again, trying to live an American dream 
where someone who doesn't understand you particularly and makes assumptions about you based on how you look, even if you haven't said anything, just because you have brown skin, there are some assumptions that are made about you. And then you can become the benefactor of a negative result. So Malcolm X had it right. Re-educating ourselves, supporting black businesses, opening black businesses, and then employing one another. But then when we do this, we then stab one another in the back. So slavery might be over, like, physically, unless, of course, you get arrested and, you know, taken to prison. And that's a whole nother podcast about the majority of the populations in prison and how that then allows for legal a legal form of slavery. That's another podcast. But slavery is physically over in the free land, but mentally we're still fucked up. We're still enslaved in our minds because instead of looking at our brown brother or sister and saying, hey, listen, I want to help you. Um, help me. I'll help you, et cetera, et cetera. We're trying to get the money. I'm not hating on you for going to school, getting your law degree or doing this or doing that. But then you know that if you are, this is just my opinion here. I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. You are a brown person who went to law school. Unless you are a certain type of brown person, you are not going to necessarily be as successful as you'd like to be in a mostly white law firm. Your book of business is a lot of it. And not in all cases is going to come from black people. But then black people don't understand the importance of having a lawyer. And then when they go to talk to a lawyer, you charge a lot of money that we don't have to pay because we don't have the resources. But then in large part, you don't realize the success that you'd like to realize because in large part, the people that have the resources to give you the money that you deserve they don't want to work with you because they've made an assumption about you because of your skin color. Hmm. So there is there's a stigma out there and I wish I could find, I came across across it as I was doing research that your president, um, Donald J. Trump, said that he had a an African-American guy in finance. And this is when he is still, I think, a civilian, if I'm not mistaken. And he says something to the effect of, and I really would like to find it right now. He says something to the effect of he has a, an African-American guy doing the finance in the accounting and finance department. And he said something to the effect of he's lazy and that in general, we are lazy people. <laughs> that's the stigma that's out there about us. And... I can't say that I disagree. Mad or not. I can't say that I disagree. Um, 
because <laughs> we, and again, I just, I'm, I'm insecure. So I'm going to say this again. until I feel more secure. It does not apply to everybody. It's only applicable if it's applicable, but, uh, We often want to take a shortcut. We we see the success of others sometimes, sometimes, and we think that we can just automatically get there. Um, we oftentimes don't want to do the work, and we don't want to fight through the adversity to get to what we want. If it's just a little bit too hard, uh, we give up. But there are strength in numbers. Hence, I talk about a collectivist society where we can work together, pool our 1.2 trillion, our resources, our education, bring people up, work together, and get rid of the whole lazy mentality. Now, there's a lot of brown folks out here working two, three jobs, and they getting it. They are getting it. And hats off to them. I hate to see it, though, because I'd much rather I'd much rather them work one good job. Actually, no. Own one good business that more than abundantly provides for their families, because if they're making a piece of the one point two trillion that we all have as a collected society, then we can all eat. Right. So, yeah, some of us are lazy. Some of us don't necessarily want to do what we should do to get to where we need to get to. And we know we need to do. And that makes it very difficult for people to want to do business with us because we have that unfortunate uh, stigma about ourselves. You might disagree with a lot of what I said, you know, and that's cool. Email me. Let's talk about it eat cornbread and caviar at gmail.com find me on instagram eat cornbread and caviar is our handle let's talk about it so it's so important now more than any other time for us to learn to run and open our own businesses and support one another and collaborate on different things my relationship here with detroit is different is dope for a lot of reasons it's a dope synergy dope relationship we're working together, right, to build in our community. Just with me having my podcasts out here, them doing multiple podcasts, they dope. A dope organization. Happy to be working with them. But I will say this. I have done a lot to try to keep my dollars as brown as possible. I tried really hard at one time. But it's difficult because, for one, we don't have as many as we could have. And a lot of the things I need, we don't have businesses for or it's not conveniently located. I will be honest to say that I'm not going to drive 45 minutes to go to the cleaners after a long day of work, school, research, or podcast, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not driving 45 minutes. I'll just be honest and say that. I just want to put it out there. But an enterprising an enterprising way to handle the situation would be somebody could have a dry cleaner truck where they go pick up stuff and they just drive around all day, bring it all back at night 
And then the next day, they spend a whole day cleaning those orders. And then the next day, they take them back out, et cetera, et cetera. It goes, it can go like that. That I would do. But I would not go to a black-owned business if <laughs> it's super far away. Or let me, you know what? Actually, let me just say it this way. I may be able to handle the fact that your building is run down and it's a tenement. I may be able to handle the fact that it's not what I would perceive to be a safe area. I'll still support it. I may even be able to handle and deal with the fact that your prices are a little bit higher because, you know, you don't have the benefit of scaling. You know, you're a small operation. So I might pay higher prices. I get that. I might drive a little bit further, too, but just not 45 minutes. I may even be able to deal with a little bit of a longer wait for your service. I might even be able to deal with a little bit of lack of punctuality because we do that sometimes, oftentimes. But what I cannot do, what I will not do, what I am medically adverse to doing, my doctor told me I can't do it, is fucked up customer service. If I do have to drive a little bit further, pay a little bit higher prices, wait a little bit longer, be in the hood, I'm not going to allow your fucked up attitude and your fucked up employees, their attitudes, I'm not going to allow them to treat me or you or your business cohorts to treat me like shit. I'm spending my money and I'm trying to keep it in my community for longer than six fucking hours and then I get there and you treat me like shit. I mean, even if you go into McDonald's, <laughs> The ones that are in the city. If you go into McDonald's, like they treat a lot of times they will treat you like shit. And you're like, whoa, we both brown here. I'm coming here. The mere fact that I am spending my dollar outside of my community, but you work here. I'm spending it at your establishment. I'm supporting you having a paycheck. So you should at least give me some respect. Right. Like I'm not doing anything wrong, but because I order something or maybe I don't understand prime example i went to a chicken place at 12 and telegraph in southfield um and the young lady on the mic she didn't sound like she really wanted to be there in the first place so i'm ordering some food she was gracious enough to let me know that i can get it cheaper if i did it in a certain way but i asked a couple more questions because i was still not clear and I can't go forth with something that I don't for, with something I don't understand. She got to add to. What did I do? In the most professional way possible, I went off on her. I said, "Listen, I said I understand you might not want to work here, and maybe you don't like your salary, but listen, sweetheart, I don't have to be here. If you don't want me here, I can go." I said, "Your attitude is shitty and it sucks. I've had a long day. I came here to get some unhealthy, artery clogging, but very comforting food for me to eat and then take my ass to bed, and then you being shitty to me." All of a sudden, another lady got on there and she was much more positive, much more polite. But it's still the point that I had to deal with that from one of my own to another. It's ridiculous. So I'd like to go on record and say. Right, that I have a certain skill set. I'm willing to come and consult at a very nominal price with your business. I can help you operate in a more lean fashion. I can help you 
uh, operate you know, more efficiently, um, and I can consult on your customer service. Let me help you out. Hit me up at eatcornbreadandcaviar at gmail.com because you're not going to build your business in the brown person community if you have shitty customer service. So call me or email me. Let's talk about that. I would like to say um, give you my quick positive vibe here. I'm really, really, I'm a person who wants to see everybody succeed. So let me first say that, especially my brown people. So we really need to take time to educate ourselves and our children and our communities to be entrepreneurs while they're young. Let me come out and give a talk, whatever. Let someone come out and give a talk. Let's teach our young people in these brown communities across the country to think about opening their own businesses. And then let's teach them how to have their own business, how to run it correctly, how to put money aside, how to have good credit so that you can have a business. Because you, you, you can have partners who can bring cash and resources to the table, but you also need credit sometimes too. We need to teach this to our young people in our communities. It's just that we also need to get a hold of the parents because if we take one, two, three hours with these young people about how to build a stronger community for their community so we can apply, employ one another, but then they go back home and get the same bullshit they've been getting it's not going to be, it's going to be off for in vain. So parents, like, for real, let's bring our kids together. Bring yourselves together. Let's get some education going on between all of us so we can all be on one accord. So you can help teach your kids what we want to teach your kids anyway. We can all do, we can rebuild our Black Wall Street. And please, speaking of the Black Wall Street, please go and download um, the Black Wall Street app. Again, that's Mandy Bowman. Um, she does have the Black Wall Street app out there. Download that. Um, um, download it. Use it. Find uh, brown-owned businesses in your communities. If you are one, please register with her app um, and be a consumer of a brown-owned business. And let's try to keep the money in a community for longer than six, six hours. Um, and also, just for the record, Entrepreneurship is not for everybody, but at the very least, at the very least, let's focus on the areas where if we're going to go to school, we encourage our young people to go to school to be an electrician, a plumber, you know, whatever trade, because trades are really a big thing. And then also you got your technology, you got your nursing, engineering, accounting, financing, and educate, education, Right. We need to see young people, young brown children need to see what they are in the front of the classroom so that they know that I can also be a teacher or I can also be a principal, right? So we want to make sure that we are up there in front of these kids in these different roles so we know that, so that they know they can be successful, right? We need to show them something different. So, folks, listen. To start making our brown dollars last longer than six hours, transfer all your dollars to brown-owned bank uh, or a credit union. Uh, visit blackoutcoalition.org 
for a list of all brown-owned banks in the U.S., banks and credit unions. Give it a shot. Like I said, sometimes you're going to, you know, there's there's a brown-owned bank that I've had some experience with. I won't put them out there, but it, was, it wasn't a positive one. But I'm not going to give up. I'm going to continue to try. I'm tired of talking. Thank you so much for listening in today. This particular subject matter was a significant passion for me because I am a person who believes that my people can do bigger and better things if we just band together and try. I'm really interested in traveling and talking and coming out to see people and have conversations about how to make things better for us. So, Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. It's free to do so. It's free for you to subscribe and it's free for you to sit and listen. I mean, I guess it costs you time, but I think it's time well spent. Give me some feedback. Hit me up on uh, uh, Eat Cornbread and Caviar at Gmail. Find me on Instagram at Eat Cornbread and Caviar. Um, Share this with your people. Subscribe. Share with your people. Have a listening party. Listen to my podcast. Help a brother out. But no, I got some good content. Seriously. But I do want to hear your feedback. I do want to communicate with you. Um, and I do appreciate you for listening today. Tell your friends and your family. Until next time, it's me, Ramon. I'm out.